Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Interesting Hour. I am your host, Justin Kupinoff, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Devesh Verma. Hello, everybody. This episode of The Interesting Hour is brought to you by Core Foundation. Core Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit. Check us out at cor-foundation.org. Like us and share us. It'll be awesome, because we can all be friends that way. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the last episode of season two, so we thought we'd finish off with a bang or a freeze. freeze. Ah! Oh, nice God. one, Justin. I see what you did there. Didn't go as well as I thought it no, would. No, it sounded great, but why is this a freeze? Because uh, today <laughs> we got Linda on, and she is discussing cryonics. Linda Chamberlain, everybody, of Alcor Life Extension Foundation. Yeah, she's the, the founder of this organization, which is one of only three foundations in the U.S. that is actually freezing people. <laughs> yeah. There was no better way to say that. Yeah. Uh, there's, this episode is very informative, especially if you were asking yourselves how your body wants to be preserved or what you're thinking about beyond that next step. So uh, buckle in. This is a morbid and fun episode. Yeah. Screw cremation. Screw burial. <laughs> put me on ice. Yeah, seriously. I was going for Viking funerals, but no. Put me on ice. Yeah. Yeah. One, two, three, four. And here we are with Linda Chamberlain, co-founder of Alcor. How's it going, Linda? Very good today. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for remoting in uh, from your office. We appreciate it. Yes, and, and uh, we've got you Skyping in from where are you exactly? Scottsdale, Arizona. Awesome. Very cool. I was actually born in Scottsdale, Arizona. Were you? Yep. All right. So I'm very aware of the heat and everything. So that's why, like, we have a heat wave going on right now, and everybody's complaining, and I'm like, "This is nothing. You guys don't know nothing about heat." And everybody here is complaining because it's monsoon, and instead of being dry, it's very muggy right now. Oh, really? Monsoon season. Yeah. That's yeah. always a fun it's, season. I just remember Arizona as I was younger when I lived there, but it just never seemed like it was. Uh, there was moisture at all. Yeah. Like it was always yeah. so dry. <laughs> So, uh, Linda, let's get into this. Uh, hey. what's, you're the co-founder of uh, the Alcor Foundation, correct? Yes. My late husband and I are the, are the co-founders. So, he's cryopreserved. Oh, he's cryopreserved. He's mm -hmm. nice. Um, so let's go into like, what you do there. Like, what, what, what is uh, Alcor? Like, and what do you particularly do at, at Alcor? Well, my title is Director of Special Projects. And that primarily means I do a lot of very unrelated things. I've at one time or another held just about every job uh, that is here. And um, so, and, and the projects that I get involved with will come and go. I'll complete a project, start another one. So uh, I get involved in just about every aspect from promotion, uh, like I am here today speaking with you to being involved with coral preservations themselves. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> so so you, you pretty much learned it all during your, during your time working there. True, true, yes. So let's start with the basics here. So everyone's on the same page. Can you tell us what is cryogenics and what is that versus cryonics? Yes, and that's a very important distinction. Cryogenics is actually a branch of physics that deals with the effects of very low temperatures on materials such as metals or biological tissue. 
Cryonics is a word that was coined back in the early 1960s to be used for what we are actually doing, cryopreserving people with the purpose that when medical technologies can be produced to revive our patients, they could then be brought back to a healthy functioning state. And it's important when you're talking about cryonics that you only use the term cryonics. Physicists who are involved with cryogenics are very touchy about having um, cryogenics used to describe the cryopreservation of, of human patients. So it's best just to stay away from that term. Yeah, because I think most people, when they think about uh, the stuff that you do, I think they just use those terms interchangeably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I would be getting the stares at like a dinner party. Like, oh, did he really just say that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you said you, uh, you basically you founded um, Alcor, uh, but... Uh, how did you come about it, and how long have have people been interested in this? It seems like it's something that's I don't. It seems like fairly new to me. I don't know. I, I know about it from Futurama. I'm a huge Futurama fan. I don't know if you uh, know anything about that show. It's my absolute favorite show. Um, but right. how how long have people uh, been looking into this and actually trying to work on it? People have been interested in this since the late 1950s. Uh, there were a few people who. We're trying to promote the idea. It actually started becoming popular in the 1960s when Robert Ettinger wrote a book and published a book called The Prospect of Immortality. Um, Ettinger is considered the father of cryonics because he did publish a book that laid out the entire idea. And his he started an organization in... Um, Michigan, in Detroit, Michigan, to do this. And my husband, Fred, and I read his book, I think it was in 1969. His book was published in 1964. I read his book in 1969 and became interested, wrote a letter to Ettinger and asked him, I at that time was living in California. I wrote a letter and asked if there was anything going on in California. Ettinger said, no, not really at the time. There was one small group of people that were interested, would get together once a month or so on a Sunday afternoon and talk about this, but there wasn't, there wasn't a capability. So I contacted this small group of people, and as it turns out, they were gearing up to promote uh, the second annual Cryonics Conference that was going to be held in San Francisco. The first one Edger had held in Detroit. And so I volunteered to get involved with this group. And that's where I met Fred. And he had a very similar kind of story. He had read Edger's book, written to Edger, been referred to this group. So that's where we met. And you met at the, con- at the conference? At the at this little group uh, that was um, going to uh, put on sponsor promote the conference. Okay, gotcha. Hmm. So yeah, so that's how we met and um, fell in love and decided that we needed to um, turn this little group of of people 
into an organization that could actually do this. Unfortunately, none of them were really interested in getting involved to that extent. So Fred and I decided we would just have to do it on our own. He was 33, I was 23. That was almost 50 years ago. And at that time, you know, we were young, we were energetic, uh, we had all kinds of enthusiasm, had no idea how hard it was going to be <laughs> to develop something like Alcor. Yeah. We knew from the beginning that we were not the right people to head up the organization forever. We just weren't qualified. I was a, an office manager. I had certain office skills. And I could do things like put together contracts and, you know, organization type things like that. Fred was a NASA engineer working at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. So he started developing the first equipment that was really to be used specifically for what we were doing. This had been done in New York and in Detroit. Uh, in New York, there was an organization there at that time. It no longer is. They had actually started cryopreserving people, but they were dealing strictly with morticians and using mortuary equipment. And that was offensive to Fred and I. This should be a medical procedure, and we shouldn't have to use mortuary equipment. For one thing, uh, it's had formaldehyde and other things in its tubing, and these kind of things can contaminate uh, a patient's vasculature, which cross-links the protein, so it's not good for you. And so um, we had certain skills uh, to offer in trying to develop the organization, but uh, it was always our goal to just try to build Alcor to be sufficiently strong and sufficiently ethical that it could be a um, very long surviving organization. We didn't know but what it would have to survive for thousands of years before people could be revived. And so we just wanted to build it to the place where it could attract the MDs and the PhDs and the MBAs that it would need. And I, I'm like a, a very proud grandmother when uh, I talk about Alcor, because I am very proud of how it has grown. It's grown very, very slowly by any average business um, formula or something. Well, it is but a pretty big undertaking, though. Yeah, <laughs> it was a huge undertaking, but today it does have MDs and PhDs and, and uh, people who uh, are qualified and skilled. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing what you accomplished. Uh, over this time period. Um, it also, it, it's also one of the things that I'm very grateful for is that when my husband found that he had terminal cancer, that we had built Alcor to the place where it could actually help save his life. So, yeah, that, and that, yeah, he's a part of the, he's literally a part of the foundation. Right. <laughs> wow. Um, you say this whole thing, everything started pretty much, it started picking up steam back in the, in the 60s, right? That's when Edinger wrote his, uh, released his book, or that's when you write his book, at least in 69, you think you said? He, um, wrote, he wrote the book in 1964. I mm -hmm. read it in 1969. Right. Like, leading up to that, like in the 50s, like what were the popular headlines talking about uh, 
I guess cryogenics or cryonics or the early days of cryonics since that wasn't a coined term at that point. Like what was sparking people's interest in the 50s about, oh, we can freeze ourselves to preserve our bodies? Well, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't national publicity. It was mostly just a few interested people who individually, uh, one individual tried to start an organization but never could really get enough people together and um, it was just individuals who were interested who would try to you know maybe write small articles for a local newspaper or something like that but there wasn't any there wasn't any big publicity until Ettinger wrote his book interesting so any kind of experiments that were conducted back then were probably like maybe like rats or something like that or something not people Yeah, actually, there wasn't even any real scientific research back at that time. Although I'd have to say, uh, now that I think about it, there were there were some early articles that were written in medical journals and scientific journals uh, about early experiments. One was a Japanese researcher um, whose last name was Suda. And he had done some experiments on freezing cat brains. And, but nothing was, you know, most of it was, it was not really at that time about trying to cryopreserve people for future revival. It was just mostly about just basic scientific research into being able to preserve biological tissues, maybe the precursors to things like. Um, you know, sperm preservation and that sort of thing. So, like, sperm preservation, that would have been separate from freezing the whole body. Like, what other th- avenues were people exploring at this time as, like, a legitimate way of, you know, prolonging life? Or, were, that, or, or was this like that, leading? Yeah, at that time, there was very little. Um, in the last 20 years of uh, there's been more and more interest in the idea of anti-aging to mm-hmm. be able to prevent people from dying of aging. And um, but back in those days, it was it was very much uh, there was very little going on. As a matter of fact, a lot of the early criticism from the scientific community was that was based on the fact that. You shouldn't be doing this until it's a proven technology. In other words, you should have reversible suspended animation before you do this. And for those of us who wanted to go ahead anyway, it was our answer was, but we have we have loved ones who are dying. Mm-hmm. And they can't wait fifty or a hundred years for these technologies to be produced. So the basic idea, as Ettinger introduced it, was freeze, wait, reanimate. The idea being that if you freeze biological tissue down to the temperature of liquid nitrogen, which is minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 197 centigrade, the that is such a low temperature that atoms no longer move. And if atoms aren't moving, you don't have enzymatic action. So you don't have any further deterioration. So that's why you can first freeze, then wait, 
for as long as you need, thousands of years if you need it, mm -hmm. and then reanimate once medical science has developed the technologies required to do that. The scientific community didn't like that idea, and they thought we should not be doing it. Yeah, I was wondering, is, has there been any obvious decay of anyone preserved so far, or has everything just been exactly the way it is since it's such uh, subjects has been frozen? Well, the evidence supports that physics, mm -hmm. which initially was just you know was just an idea based on physics, but the evidence does support that, and a lot of research has been done recently which is proof of concept that this entire idea can and will work. That's fascinating. Well, I think, I think if, you, if you don't mind, we should probably just get into like, the actual process of it and, and what's, what's actually going on there and what's, what, what your uh, company's actually doing. at the Because uh, you have to wait until somebody is uh, legally pronounced dead before you start preserving them, correct? Correct. Okay, and that's that's just a legality issue, but right? that's not even the first step, Justin. We got to go backwards still, like signing up. How does the whole thing work, <laughs> step by step? I, I, we need to go through this. Okay, you want to start with a person has read something or seen something on the media and is interested, so they call when they want to make arrangements. Yeah. Okay. There are two aspects to making arrangements for this. One is a. Uh, set of between 6 and 15 legal documents that a person has to sign. If, uh, if a person wants to sign up a minor, say a married couple want to sign up their children, then we have what we call a third-party uh, authorization, so the parents are doing it, and there are more forms. That's why we, I say it's between 6 and 15 forms. There mm -hmm. are more forms. Um, and if it is an international um, situation, there are additional forms for that as well. Um, so th there's all these legal forms. There's the basic contract. Uh, there's the attachment one to the contract, which are decisions that the individual makes and uh, informs Alcor of. And it's an attachment so that they can change those decisions anytime they want to. For example, there are two ways that you can be cryopreserved. One is called whole body and the other is called neuro. And so a person makes their decision uh, which way they want to go and they tell Alcor. Uh, there are other things like what if Alcor is not able to cryopreserve you for whatever reason? What do you want done with your funding? And then they get to tell us, I want it returned to my estate, I want it given to my spouse, I want it given to my cat, whatever they want. <laughs> uh, they tell us and then that's what we follow. And are, so, are you speaking of a situation where like somebody had a horrible accident like and wasn't that you weren't able to preserve their body? Right. Yes. Say they went down an airplane into the ocean and the plane was never found and we weren't able to cryopreserve anything. Okay. Another another one of the questions in that attachment is um, if we are not able to cryopreserve your whole body or your whole cephalon, depending upon your choice, um, what, what would you want done? And one of the choices is any part of my brain that you can find, I want you to cryopreserve it. Or uh, if it's been more than 18 hours, 
don't cryopreserve anything, just return my funding to the following. And so we have people tell us uh, under different circumstances what they want done. There's also a um, consent form, informed consent form, which is several pages long, and we try to tell them everything we can think of that could possibly go wrong, uh, everything from the airplane that goes into the ocean to um, you have hostile relatives who have you have you buried and then inform us two years later about this. Um, we try to, everything that could possibly go wrong, we make sure that people understand that this is not a, um, a proven protocol and it is in, and revival cannot be guaranteed because those uh, technologies have not been produced yet. So there are a lot of reasons why this is not something that is guaranteed and we want people to understand that and we make them sign an informed consent. Um, and then there's the last will and testament, giving their body to Alcor so that it can um, access um, their body using the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. If they're uh, funding with insurance, we give them a buyback agreement, which tells them that at any time, for any reason, if they want um, that insurance policy, the ownership of that policy returned to them, which will do that within 30 days. We won't take out any loans on their policy, things like that. Um, and so there's a lot of paperwork to understand and to go over. The second thing is to provide the funding and the um, cost of a whole body cryopreservation is 200000 currently. The cost of a neuro cryopreservation is 80000 Now, one of the things that's different about the way Alcor does things and other organizations is that 50% of the funding which is provided goes towards getting the person cryopreserved. The other 50% goes into our patient care trust, which is a, a separate organization with a separate board of directors from Alcor. And the patient care trust is there to make sure that there's always funds available if there's an emergency that endangers this patient maybe their cryo capsule has failed and a new one uh, needs to be put in place. They cost about $30,000. So um, the patient care trust is there for that sort of thing. The, uh, and it's also there for um, paying for the liquid nitrogen for ever, for as long as it takes to get them uh, revived. Mm -hmm. And it's there to pay for the cost of revival if and when that becomes possible and any rehabilitation that a person might need when they wake up in the future and maybe have some future shock and need some help. Alcor is the only organization that does these additional things. All of the other organizations currently uh, around the world only offer cryopreservation and they don't 
deal with these other issues. Yeah, I remember when we were speaking earlier on the phone before we even pressed record today, uh, uh-huh. as something that I didn't even think about is like, you know, <laughs> you we, we get the technology, you get somebody revived, and they wake up in the future and they're like, what the hell's going on? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And then seriously having, <laughs> having a problem with it. Uh, but yeah, you guys, uh, you guys have really thought about everything, <laughs> getting some like psychological help or something like that. And, and there are uh, situations, it's not the majority, but some of our patients were, uh, the arrangements for them to be cryopreserved were made by their families. They didn't even know this was being done. So when they wake up and they're told um, that um, they've been revived maybe 50 years from now, if they have any problems with that, we want to make sure that they get the help that they need. Wow, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I need to backtrack, though, with you and ask you a couple questions or just verify some things with you. So Uh you're saying 200K for a whole body uh, freezing. That's obviously, I think, self-explanatory. You're freezing your whole body. Uh, Uh The 80K, the neuro, is that just the brain or is it like Futurama decapitated head type thing? Like, (laughs) Like, What does that look like? It is a decapitated cephalon, which is all of the structures from the tippy top of your head down to about your clavicle. Okay. So like Star Trek Borg type thing going on. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. (laughs) I'm just trying to picture this. Uh, Okay. So. So it's probably appropriate to talk about what are the pros and cons of the two different types of cryopreservation Most people who are familiar with the technology involved and with the kinds of technologies that will be required for revival, and nanotechnology is almost always thought to be at least a part of revival technology, most people who understand these technical issues are neuros. That's, they're not taking their body along with them. And they're several reasons for that. Right now, with our capabilities being what they are and some of our major roadblocks to getting a good cryoprotection for our member, most of them are, uh, most of the problems are sociological. They are things like, how do we get to the person fast enough? Uh, We have a member in Kentucky and uh, they go down without any notice sudden heart attack. How do we get our team and our equipment to them fast enough that uh, they can get a good cryoprotection? It is very hard to do with a whole body patient. We do have the knowledge and the equipment and the ability to do a field cryoprotection for neuro, we can we can send our team and equipment to them in Kentucky or wherever they are, and cryoprotect them in the field. We cannot do that with a whole body, and it mostly comes down to mass. And the the, the large the smaller a mass is, the easier it is to control all of the variables and to get the outcome that you want. The larger the mass the more complicated it becomes, the more variables are involved, and the less likely you are to get the outcome that you want. So you get a better cryoprotection 
if you are a neural patient in most cases. If um, you, one of the things that we encourage our members to do, neural or whole body, is to, if they know that they have a health issue, relocate to Scottsdale so that when the time comes, you can go into hospice here. We have two different hospice organizations that we work with. Go into hospice. We can be monitoring you on a daily basis. Uh, when you get within a few days of needing to be cryopreserved, our team can go on a 24-7 standby right there in the hospice with you so that the moment uh, you are pronounced, our team can start the procedures immediately. This is the best possible situation. Mm -hmm. Happily, this is the way we did it with my husband, Fred, um, and he has, uh, according to the CAT scans that we do of our patients' brains, he has one of the best cryopreservations to date. But it was orchestrated. It was well-planned. And if it isn't orchestrated and well-planned, then um, there are a lot more problems with whole body. One of them being that anybody who's over the age of 40 has already started having calcification in their arteries, uh, their scar tissue from previous disease uh, processes and things. We have to use the vasculature to replace the blood with our cryoprotective fluids. And if the vasculature is not in good condition, that will compromise the cryoprotection. So we tell people who choose whole body, we always, I always try to talk people into going neuro, but if they still want to go whole body, it's usually an emotional response. They can't get past the idea of having their body removed and discarded. So, I can understand that. I, yeah, I can definitely to... understand that too. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like something that it would be very hard to, to get past. It, it is for some people. It never was for me, but I know that uh, a lot of people it is difficult, and I respect that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we do offer it, but we, but we want people to understand that there will be compromises they have to accept. And so, um, but... Uh, Probably, uh, I think our current ratio of whole body to neuro is about 50-50. Oh, wow. That's pretty split. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually it's the more technical uh, and biologically educated people that uh, will go for neuro. Sometimes people will choose it based on pricing. They can't really afford whole body. They go neuro. Um, perhaps they're hoping that with time they'll have, uh, you know, a better job, a uh, better income situation and be able to convert to whole body at a later time. When you're saying this, does that mean like when you finish all the paperwork involved for an, uh, like a, a new, do you call them customers or patients at this point? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, right. Well, it's, uh, we call them members because we okay. are a nonprofit organization and that is the term that um, the powers that be prefer for nonprofit organization. So they're members while they're living, and then once they've been cryopreserved, they become patients. And the reason we call them patients is because we don't consider them to be dead. Uh, so we have to discuss um, the 
definition of death, which is something which changes periodically. Uh, currently, clinical and legal death is when your heart and your lungs stop working and can't function on their own. Um, but we know that your cells are not dead. It's not an on-off switch. It takes hours for all of your cells to uh, die. Certainly, um, at the moment of clinical death, your organs are all still functioning. If that was not true, we wouldn't be able to have heart transplants and liver transplants. Right. So um, it's a very, it's, in a way, it's a very arbitrary and almost meaningless uh, concept. Uh, but legally, um, you know, it has to be defined. And so they've chosen that particular definition. But we still have approximately 18 hours from the time the heart and lungs stop. We have about 18 hours before so much deterioration has happened that we can no longer use the vasculature. So usually uh, we have an 18-hour cut off for when we can perfuse our patients. Okay, and yeah, that was that was actually my next question because you were saying that it's it's imperative to get there as fast as you can, but once it's past that that 18-hour window is that kind of the cutoff? It is. Uh, and every time we have stretched it just a little bit, 19 hours or 20 hours, um, we do see very poor results from the cryo uh, protection protocol that we have used. And uh, it's almost better to just um, just go ahead and go what we call a straight freeze. We just take them down in temperature unprotected as fast as we can so we can get them to the temperature where no more deterioration will take place. And um, it's a hard call. And it's very difficult, but that from our own um, research, our own data uh, on our patients, if we go past 18 hours, it just really is not to their benefit. What's, what's the exact difference between what you said, a straight freeze and what you would do normally? Say you got their optimal time, you're, the, the person's on hospice, you're waiting there. What, what's uh -huh. the difference in proce procedure between those two? Well, a straight freeze, you just get them down in temperature as fast as you can. You pack them in dry ice initially, and then you get them back to Alcor, where they are then ta taken on down the rest of the way to liquid nitrogen. If we can do our optimum procedures, there are three steps. Each one can be broken down a little bit, but the three main steps are, first of all, to stabilize the patient as much as we can um, at high temperatures, then um, cryoprotect them, and then get them down to liquid nitrogen temperature. So in the stabilization uh, procedure, basically what we do, the most important thing that we can do is hypothermia. Almost everybody has seen or read news stories about uh, people who have fallen through the ice into an icy cold pond, been pulled out. I think the longest one I can remember reading was five hours of clinical death, no heart, no lung function. Um, and yet they were revived and went on to live a very healthy life. So hypothermia is the single most important thing we can do. 
Um, so the first thing we do, if we're there uh, in hospice with them, the moment they're pronounced, we put them into an ice bath, which has uh, a water circulating device so that there, it's it's got crushed ice and it has water. So it's ice water and the ice water is being circulated and it flows over their face and head. Um, for the best cooling we can do with that kind of a situation. Then they're intubated and ventilated so that their uh, lung function is restored. A, a mechanical um, thumper is put on them so that their heart function is restored. So for all purposes, they died and a couple of minutes later they're living again. Mm -hmm. um, from a biological standpoint. Right. And, and then we start to introduce, we have about 15 different medications. Uh, once their circulation is going again, we give them these medications to further stabilize them and slow down the dying process. Um, we give them... Um, Can I just ask real quick? I'm sorry, what are some of the medications that, that you'd be giving them? Okay, we give them heparin, and several other medications to stop the blood from clotting and uh, to break up any blood clots that are there. Mm -hmm. We give vasopressors, which uh, will help keep the vasculature firm and strong and working properly so the circulation is as good as possible. Uh, we use epinephrine, um, which keeps the heart um, working well. And so... And, and then we also have things like uh, Maalox uh, for the stomach so that stomach acids uh, don't get out of control. Um, what else? We have uh, antibiotics that we introduce to keep um, bacteria from growing in the patient. And once they uh, we've got them stabilized to this point, the ice bath is bringing their temperature down slowly because they are a large mass. Of biological tissue. Um, then we move them to the Alcor operating room where we will begin the crowd protection. And there are two steps here also, um, actually two different protocols depending on the situation. If our patient came from a Scottsdale hospice um, and it's our optimum situation, then we just immediately uh, we cannulate them, which means we put um, tubes into their vasculature so that we can remove the blood and introduce our cryoprotective chemicals, which are meant to keep crystallization from happening so that when they solidify, they don't have crystals. They're not frozen as in the early days or in a worst case uh, situation. Instead, they're vitrified, and a vitrified liquid doesn't crystallize. It turns to a solid glass, and obviously, you can visualize there's a lot less damage if you don't have crystals. Right. Um, if Now, the, the other scenario would be that this patient had to be, um, they died maybe in New York or in Canada, Europe, South America, and 
we got our team to them as quickly as possible, but it was still uh, a very long period of time. If we're within our 18-hour window, we will, if they're a neuro, we can go ahead and do a field neuro cryopreservation. Uh, and, and then we would pack them in dry ice, which is about minus, I hate to say, I can't remember for sure what dry ice is, but it's, it's about minus 110, I think. Um, and at that temperature, they can be safely transported back to Alcor. They have as much as two weeks before damage is remarkable. If we are, if we have a patient and we were not able to do anything uh, for them, then it would be a straight freeze. But let's take the, the scenario of the person who they're, you know, we, we were able to be there. They knew they were going down. They were ill, but they couldn't get themselves moved to Scottsdale. So we're able to get our team to them and be there on standby, hopefully in their hospital or home. And um, then at that point, um, we would be able to at least do um, a little bit more extensive stabilization. We would at that point be able to wash out their blood with organ transplant solution, the same solutions that organ transplant teams use all over the world to keep hearts and livers viable for 10 or 15 hours until they can get it to a donor. We would wash out the blood, replace it with organ transplant solution, and then the, the uh, patient would be packed in ice and air shipped back to Alcor. At that point, they, we would then go into the cryoprotection. Wow, that is an um, incredible process. <laughs> they made it seem a lot simpler in Futurama, I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so now for the cryoprotection, we are going to replace either their blood or their organ transplant solution um, with our cryoprotective agents, which will allow them to vitrify. And we take them down uh, very slowly in temperature until they're at liquid nitrogen. And then that's where they stay until uh, revival technologies become available. Linda, I have some follow-up questions for you based off the sure. whole entire process. So you, the 18-hour mark, is that for both body and neuro, or is like body no longer feasible after like another time limit? Is this 18 hours for both? It is. It can be a little bit longer for um, the neuro because the brain has more capillaries. It, is, it, it has better circulation than the rest of the body. And so... It um, can sometimes be a little bit better, but it's it's pretty much for both. Okay, and I have some other questions just because in, in case I become a customer or uh, a member. Um, so let's say uh, I walk in, I want to get a whole body freeze, like pay for that, get a deposit down, um, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming the deposit's in full. I think for a whole body, it's at 200k. So I, you have to have an account with 200k in it in order for me to yes. be a member, correct? Okay. Yes. Um. And let's say at the time of my death, it's no longer possible for me to preserve my entire body. It has to be neuro. Um, does the extra money get thrown into my trust or what happens with that extra 120K? That is one of the questions in attachment one where you get to tell us what you want done. Oh, okay. 
And so, yeah, people can can choose what they want done. Now, and then furthermore, let's say everything goes great, uh, frozen, um, but there's a malfunction over the years. Whatever, what like, has there ever been any failures uh, to any uh, uh, cryonics? Uh, what do you want to call them? Tubes? I'm not sure what you call them. The uh, the storage equipment. Equipment. Yeah, um, we. we um, generically, they're referred to as cryocapsules. Mm-hmm. The engineering term um, for that structure is is a doer, D-E-W-A-R. That was the name of the uh, man who invented it. It's actually like a giant thermos bottle. Um, and you fill it with liquid nitrogen, and it stays at liquid nitrogen temperature as long as there's liquid nitrogen inside. Okay. And, and to answer your question... Um, we have never had a failure of any of our doers. The earlier ones that we used are still being used. They're not as efficient as the early, as the more recent versions, but we've never had a failure of one of them. That is one of the things that the patient care trust is meant to protect against. A failure of a cryocapsule mm-hmm. is one of the things that could endanger our patients. Okay, cool. Thanks for clarifying all that stuff. Uh-huh. I have a question about uh, some of the legality of this whole thing because uh, we already spoke about like you can't even if somebody begged you guys, they're like, "Just freeze me now, please." <laughs> like yeah. you, you can't legally do that until they're legally pronounced dead. Um, and uh, I was just wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit more, and then if there's any other uh, legal issues that you feel maybe have kept you guys from moving forward or anything that the government kind of restrains you on in any other capacity. The need to wait until a person is um, legally and clinically dead uh, is a legal requirement we obviously would rather that that were not the case. There are things right now like um, right to die uh, legislation. Um, California's is, I guess, currently being reviewed. Um, there are five states that have uh, put laws in effect that allow assisted suicide, which would make it a lot easier. No one has tried it yet uh, with cryonics as uh, their purpose, so we don't know exactly how that would work, if it would be uh, legally challenged or not. There was a lawsuit in the 1980s, an Alcor member who lived in Northern California sued the state of California for the right to be cryopreserved before he died because he had a brain tumor that was eating his brain. Um, unfortunately, he lost the lawsuit, and the and so therefore uh, it's still uh, not allowed under any circumstances. And we and we are just very hopeful that with laws coming along and beginning to be accepted to give people more rights in choosing how and when they die, um, mm-hmm. we're hopeful that that will help us. Uh, improve the situation for people who have chosen cryonics. Right. Yeah, I don't mean to go on a rant here, but I, like I that's one thing I've always been for like it like for people like looking for, you know, a cure for something and there's so many untested medicines, it's like 
if you, if you're going out anyways, like seriously, let me take the risk. It's my body. Let me let me take the risk on this new medication, you know, rather than the government just having to get involved. But you're talking to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask: uh, Is there other places in the world where it's easier to study cryonics uh, that more research is being done, or is it just strictly in the U.S.? Uh, there isn't any pl- place where more research is being done than in the U.S. The laws in Switzerland are much more liberal. You can pretty much um, choose your place and time and mode of death there. Uh, there, there aren't any facilities there. Uh, a lot of you know discussion has taken place over the years as to how to. Uh, be able to use that, um, but it's not that, you know, it's just not that easy, and so far nobody in Europe um, who lives in Switzerland has uh, been interested in, in trying to do that, so uh, we're still kind of stuck with uh, U.S. laws in general for most of our members. Oh, that's interesting. So, I'm sure you get uh, a bunch of people, or I, I don't know if you do, but do you ever get people um, protesting you guys or uh, nasty <laughs> letters or anything like that of, of people that take moral issue with what you do? I don't think so. We, we do get a certain number of people who are not mentally flying on all thrusters and... Uh, <laughs> Um, that are just very confused and you know don't really know. We do have a we do have a small percentage of people who are clinically depressed or ill and want to know if they can commit suicide and then be cryopreserved. And we always tell them that would not work well for you because the current laws are that. If a, if, if a person commits suicide, an autopsy will be performed, and I guess that's to make sure that it was suicide and not homicide. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. So somebody coming in and being like, I'm going to sign up and then I'm going to kill myself. They get an autopsy. And then they have to get an autopsy that completely ruins the whole, the whole idea. It, it certainly can. We have had a couple of situations where... We were able to convince the medical examiner um, to do a virtual autopsy or to limit uh, the autopsy to the body and spare the head and brain, and they have cooperated with us. But it's not the kind of thing where um, we, you know, we don't want to encourage it. We always want to make sure if someone comes to us with that request. They have to understand that, no, we can't uh, encourage them to do that. Chances are it will be a bad outcome for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if I could just ask for, if, like, how how would you, def- because I'm sure there may be people even listening to this podcast that are like, you know, doubtful of the, not just of whether or not it, it could actually work, but just whether or not it's something that that's moral that that we should be messing with. What w- what would you say to somebody that would have some moral questions that like that? Well, you know there are there are people right now there are religious sects that don't believe in medical attention of any kind. Even if their children are dying, they 
relig- the religion prevents them from taking their children Christian to a scientists. doctor. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't sure of the name of the, of the group, but yeah. there are people uh, like that uh, even today. And so they're, they're all, there's a wide range of attitudes on life and what it means and um it's it's you know i think it's the minority but the way we look at it is that cryonics is an extension of emergency medicine when the hospital and the doctor give up there's no longer anything they can do with their given protocols that's when alcor can step in and take over to try to stop the dying process, hopefully save your life by keeping you at liquid nitrogen temperature until um, revival technologies are developed. It's kind of like, Alcor is kind of like uh, an ambulance. You know, if, if your loved one has a heart attack and, and is dying, you, you'll call 911 and get an ambulance and hopefully get them to a hospital in time um, and Alcor is kind of like that, but our ambulance doesn't take you to the local hospital. It takes you to a hospital in the future. Right. Yeah, literally. Well, well put. I think that was a, a good response. I can, if you'd be interested, tell you about a few of the research things that have happened in the last 15 years that are good proof of concept uh, for this working uh, everybody, of course, has heard about frozen sperm and eggs and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the last 10 years, a couple of very important things have happened. Once again here, remember I was saying that mass is vital to success. Um, the larger the mass, the more difficult it is to control the variables and get the outcome that you want. So these are proof of concept because they're very small mass. But... About eight years ago, a rabbit kidney, which is about the size of the end of your thumb, both of the kidneys of the rabbit were removed. The, one of the kidneys was vitrified and then rewarmed and put back in the rabbit, and the rabbit lived a very habit uh, bunny life, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is proof of concept that you can vitrify biological tissue, revive it, and it will function properly. There was another um, proof of concept along those lines in that um, human brain slices, very, very small uh, brain slice, um, was vitrified and then rewarmed. um, And it also, under electron micrograph, uh, was shown to be perfectly healthy. Now, one of the important things about this second experiment is up until then, up, up until, you know, all, in our entire history, it was much easier to preserve tissue than it was to rewarm it and revive it because you can control the variables as you're going down in temperature. But once you start to rewarm, you lose all control. If the warming is from the outside, which it usually has to be with any kind of a volume mass kind of thing well the outside will warm faster than the inside you'll have temperature gradients these will cause cracks fractures and crystallization Um, with this particular brain slice experiment 
they were decided to try using microwaves, radio waves, to do the heating so that the heating could be uniform across the entire mass. And it was shown to be very successful. Now, of course, it's much easier to rewarm a tissue slice than it is to rewarm a cephalon right. or a body. <laughs> so it's proof of concept. The technology isn't there yet. One other really uh, interesting experiment that was done about four years ago um, is little worms called nematodes, which are used a lot in biological experiments. They're microscopic. They had about 100 of them in a Petri dish, and they trained them where to go in the Petri dish to get their meal. And then they vitrified them all, brought them back, and a huge percentage, statistically huge percentage, went back to exact place to find their food, wow. showing <laughs> their, memory, their memory was preserved. One other little fun thing about that experiment was one of the one of the worms was pregnant, and after she was revived, she went ahead and had her babies. Wow, oh, wow. that's pretty cool. Yeah, so there is a lot of interesting uh, work that's going on. Vitrification is the single most important advance uh, that has taken place in the last thirty years. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So anytime a MD or a researcher of some kind says there is no scientific reason to believe that this will ever be possible, they just simply haven't read the scientific papers. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> the things that exist already, they just haven't looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, is there any I, – I know you have to be – there's confidentiality with your uh, patients – um, mm -hmm. But is there anything, any notable figures that are uh, that are public that you're allowed to talk about that's gone through this process? Everybody's got to know about Walt Disney. <laughs> yes, everybody asks that question. Unfortunately, Walt Disney was not cryopreserved. He was interested in the 1950s, and it was before anybody had tried to do this, so it wasn't possible for him. Um, I can talk about Ted Williams, who was a famous baseball star. Um, I can talk about him because I don't have to worry about the confidentiality. He was in every major newspaper in the U.S. for several months, and so um, there's uh, no confidentiality problem there. He is at Alcor. He is still safely corral-preserved. Um, most of the other people that I know I can talk about, I don't know if you would know them. Um, the... Um, all of a sudden, I've gone blank on the individual I was going to mention. Uh, the the uh, the singularity is near. Wait, uh, was uh, Ray Kurzweil? Yes, Ray Kurzweil. I'm, yeah, I, I, it's <laughs> one of the terrible things about getting old is you can't even remember household names. <laughs> um, Ray Kurzweil is uh, an open, uh, non-confidential member, and I can mention him. Probably. Alcor. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, and I can also mention, um, had his name on the tip of my tongue a moment ago. He was the father of AI at MIT. Um, I should know this name. Uh, who can get it first? I don't know. You were probably going to get it first before me. Oh, I don't have access. <laughs> <laughs> Devesh is picking up his phone. Yeah, I'm picking up my phone now. Right. He needs to know. 
yeah, he too had so much publicity that um, I can discuss him. But most most people, if I'm asked, I have to say, I'm sorry, I can either confirm or deny because if if I only confirm, then anybody that I say I can't confirm, then it's, it's obvious they're not. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay. So, it's the popular kids are doing it. That's what you were trying to say here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I'm um, assuming uh, you'll be doing this as well. Is this uh, in well, your yes. future? Oh yes, it's a it's a it's very much a family tradition. Um, <laughs> my husband and I um, have always been uh, signed up for this process. And his um, his father, my father in law, was Elcor's first patient in 1976. And my mother was cryopreserved preserved in 1991. Oh wow! It really is and in the family. Yeah, and we're all neuros. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. You guys aren't afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, was there anything else that uh, that we didn't touch on that you wanted to uh, to speak about before we wrap this thing up? Um, geez, we've covered most of it. I yeah, we, we tried could... to go through everything. <laughs> <laughs> really did. This is just so fascinating. I really think our listeners will will like this episode. So, Linda, thank you so much for being on the show with us. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. So there you have it. Why just die when you can freeze yourself? And not even just your whole body, just part of it. Yeah. Neurofreezing. Just just the brain or a piece of it. I mean, that's kind of crazy if you ever saw the uh, the capsules of like a neuro... Like, I would kind of freak out. I kind of <laughs> wish we went to the state and uh, kind of... This would have been a fun one to do on site. Yeah. Get, get a cool. tour. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, Linda was great. Uh, I'm glad she was able to remote in. Uh, it, we just needed to get this interview with her. Uh, cryonics, I mean... Yeah, it's such a weird topic. Yeah, to I had this about. idea a while ago, and I was like, "What a better season closer <laughs> than to do it on this." It's something that I've been just who's not interested at least learning more about it, whether you whether you believe it's a feasible thing or not. Well, yeah, exactly. We don't even know if it's feasible yet, right? It's just things are pointing towards feasibility, like she was saying at the yeah. most recent experiments and stuff. But all the like, people in those pods are frozen with their fingers crossed. I know <laughs> you. I know you, Justin. You just really want Futurama. To become our future. I really do want that to happen. <laughs> well, everybody, if you want to check out more of what Linda does, uh, check out Alcor's website. It's Alcor, A-L-C-O-R dot org. And uh, see what they're doing. Uh, if you're interested, I'm sure you might even talk to Linda herself and <laughs> she'll walk you through the process. Yep. Thanks, guys, for uh, joining us for the end of season two. Yeah, it's been fun. I hope you guys enjoyed all the uh, professionals we've had on there. And I uh, can't wait for next time, guys. And once again, this episode is brought to you by Core Foundation. Check us out, cor-foundation.org. Not alcor.org, but corefoundation.org. Take care, everybody. Until next time. Peace. Peace.